Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. Um, I'm really grateful that it worked out that on the day that I'm giving this message, uh, we had Jordan and Josh's testimony, and uh, I really value what I hear them say. Because it's a perspective that doesn't come naturally to me. I realize how differently they process the world and faith than the way I do. And I'm growing just by listening, paying attention. This morning, I want to talk about this really important moment, this window uh, of opportunity that we face as a church to decide what the future of harvest is going to look like. I recently read a pretty surprising statistic in the Harvard Business Review um, website, and it said that the majority of family-owned businesses, which, by the way, are the majority of businesses in America, uh, the majority of family businesses fail in the transition or succession from the founders to the next generation. At least 50, as high as 70% of family businesses collapse at the point where there's a succession to the next generation. And the ones that make it, something like 90% fail in the handoff to the third generation. That's startling. And as I thought about that, the, the dynamics that govern that, I, I couldn't help thinking some of that has to be true in the church as well. Now, I, I understand that uh, church is not a business um, it's not a family business, especially, even though some churches are run that way, it's not really a family business, and yet people are people everywhere they go. Wherever humans gather, certain things, certain dynamics govern the way we relate to each other. And so I, I thought a lot about this. There are so many reasons offered for why family businesses fail at that rate. But one of the key themes that I saw coming out of that was that the first generation that founded the business put so much focus on building success and so little focus on building successors. So there was this huge assumption that these kids who grew up watching the business, um, living off of its profits, are going to just step in and do great. But very little intentionality went into making space for them, empowering them, training them. It was just like, yeah, this is your fallback position. If you can't find anything else you'd like to do, take over the family business. That's a terrible way to hand something off. It's like if, you're, if you've exhausted all other possibilities, just come and take this. In order for something to be handed off well, it can't just be, well, I was here, now you're here. <laughs> And we just run out. Even presidential successions don't work like that. I mean, there's, there's a, th- a lot of thought process that goes into handing something from one group to another. And so I've, I've been thinking a great deal lately about transitions and succession, especially in the church. Over the last 25 years, I have watched the evolution of the immigrant church in America very closely. And I don't think I've just watched it from a distance. I've watched it really um, upfront, close, personal. I've gotten very involved with that evolutionary process. 
And I want to just hand it to the first generation because sometimes the second generation has so much to say that is negative about the first generation. But the truth is, when I think about my parents' generation, and I, I, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge not everyone in this room is an immigrant or is descended directly from immigrants in the last generation. But so many here are, and so you'll relate to what I'm saying. My parents' generation had credentialing, had a support structure, had community, and they uprooted themselves and left all of it to go to a place where they didn't understand the culture or the language, and they did an extraordinary thing, building a life here. They built businesses and churches and neighborhoods, support structures. And the fact that they succeeded in doing that is remarkable to me. So I want to give them that credit. And I also want to say that when they thought about the next generation, by and large, many of them did a good job of setting up the next generation for material success. Maybe they did too good a job because some of us grew up scarred, being told over and over how material success was the whole reason that they had uprooted everything to come here. Did any of you grow up hearing that? We gave up everything. We sacrificed all so you could have a chance. Don't you fail. Get those good grades. And so they did a great job of making sure that the next gen would succeed, at least in a material sense. And that's what happened. So many achieved great things. As youth pastors, when I was a youth pastor back in the early 90s, we used to joke with other youth pastors, the parents in these churches would be happier if their kids made it into Harvard than into heaven. That's what we believed, because that seemed to be the main value, is if you would just have a good life, that's great. And then, if you have time left over, go to church. It seemed like they were fighting hard for their community, their generation, and I don't blame them. When you are that much in survival mode, it's an extraordinary challenge just to hold it together for your own group. They had every reason, understandably, to focus on the needs of their generation. But if we're being honest, the spiritual needs of the next generation were largely an afterthought. And as I've watched closely, I can tell that's true. Up until about 12th grade, all the immigrant churches did great. They're like, man, youth group is awesome. And then after 12th, they're like, oh, we have no idea what to do with you. Go to college and we'll see if you come back. And when they came back, there was nothing. So then they said, now you teach in youth group. Don't ever leave us now. And there just seemed to be no plan. So if we're, if we're honest, the handoff of the church from the first generation to the second in the United States has been decidedly very clumsy and awkward, even painful. I have many friends who have left Christianity and left ministry because of the pain they sustained in that clumsy handoff. So I think about transitions especially generational transitions, and how critically important they are. And the truth is, we are now at the next generational transition point. We have a very narrow window of opportunity to decide whether the next generation after mine will receive this church and the calling of God and do something with it or not. I want to show you a picture (laughs) Uh, Chris, you remember this? You're, you're right there in, somewhere. He's, uh, where, where are you? You're in this picture. There you are, the glasses and the tie. Third from the left up there. 
We have a handful of people who are still here from the very beginning. This is the signing of our charter, I think, back in 1996 or 97, one of the earliest group pictures I have from our church. 27 years ago, do you know how old I was when, when I began at this church? I was 27 years old, just about to turn 28. I was two years older than my son Noah is right now. I had no idea what I was doing. I could not have been more naive, more inexperienced, more stupid than I was back then. And Chris was just one year less stupid than I was. And we kind of held hands and said, all right, let's go. Let's see if something could happen for the next generation. And really, to their credit, the first generation that first launched us out, they wanted that for us. They didn't want to control us or limit us. They wanted us to run as fast as we could and fly as early as we could. So they released us. And by God's grace, this ragtag group of inexperienced kids, I really, we're looking at that, we're kids. Most of us had our children after the church started. And by God's grace, we've managed to build something I think is beautiful and healthy and stable here. It's not perfect. If you ever find a perfect church, you're already dead and in heaven. Uh, so say hello to Jesus for me, because there's no such thing on this earth as a perfect church. But I love this church, and I am so grateful and proud of what the Lord has done here among us. And the thing is, this group of 20-somethings that started the church together, something weird happened. We gathered other 20-somethings, and we hung out, and we're so happy, and then more 20-somethings came. And slowly, we 20-somethings, in our joy, built a church and became 30-somethings. And then little ones came along, and people started pairing up and getting married. And then the 30-somethings enjoyed life, and we built this church for ourselves. And, and then we 30-somethings became 40-somethings. And now we 40-somethings are becoming the people who sprain their ankles walking downstairs. <laughs> and something weird happened along the way is that in the joy of community, we began to think of the whole church as us, one homogenous generational group for whom we built everything. When children started to pop up, we took children's ministry seriously. When teenagers started to pop up, we took youth ministry seriously. And at each stage, we built a church in response to the majority us, what we needed, what we needed to get out of it. And we have successfully built a church that has served the purpose, mission, and needs of my generation really, really well. But if I'm really being honest, right now for those who are younger adults, 20s and 30s, this has not been as easy a place to call home as for those of us who are in our 40s and 50s. I want to applaud and affirm all of you who are in your 20s and 30s who are sticking it out and committing here. Because I know that it hasn't been as easy as if you're in a place full of other young adults. But I really feel like right now we're at a crossroads where we got to take seriously. Will the next generation be called to take things from here? I don't want to repeat the mistake that I saw my parents' generation making. 
They had a good excuse, man. They were, they were immigrants. They were just trying to survive. I don't know that we have the same excuse to fall back on because we watch the same Netflix shows as our kids. I mean, there's no barrier built in to make us have to lose them. And yet, I think we're going to lose the next generation if we're not intentional in empowering and opening up everything in our lives to one another across generations. Psalm 78 has this beautiful expression of commitment from one generation to the next to pass along this rich tradition and heritage of faith that God gave to one generation so that the next will benefit from what God has done. And the psalmist writes, of speaking of the works and the deeds and the words of God revealed to them over the course of their long lives, the psalmist says, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. I can say honestly that God has shown me a great deal in just my 54 years of life. I've seen so much of him and the way he's working in the world. As I've traveled around the world, I've seen him in different ways than I ever ever imagined I would. My heart and my mind are full of the stories of who God is and how he's shown himself to me. If we could sit down for a long lunch, I would regale you with story after story of the amazing, even miraculous ways I've experienced God in ways that even I, as a formerly trained scientist, simply cannot explain. Things that still make me shiver when I think I actually lived through them. And the psalmist is saying that one of the greatest gifts we can give to those coming after us is to help them see this God through our stories and our memories. They're going to see him in their own right for sure. They're going to experience God their own way. But it's such a gift to tell those coming up after us, this is the God I knew. This is why I'm still walking with him now in this older age. At so many points along the story of a human life, you could divert away from the path you're on, go a different way. And there were temptations to do that, and yet the God who revealed himself again and again has held me very close to him. I can't unknow him. And I want the next generation through my testimony and through my memories to see that same God. You know, when you're younger, and I still remember this attitude, how this felt. When I was younger, I thought that the world began to exist when I was born. Because it's like I showed up and everything's there. And so surely the world began when I began. That's That's the pride of the young. It's their luxury. But as young people begin to listen to those who are older, a bigger picture starts to develop. Oh, wait. No, there was a lot of stuff going on before I showed up. And they begin to understand through the testimony of those who are older that they are just the most recent chapter of a much bigger story. Their chapter matters. It's very important. But the world didn't begin when they were born. And I once thought that. I once thought that my parents were just these beings mainly put on earth to provide for me so that I could have a story. Now in my old age, I'm interviewing them regularly, and I am fascinated at what interesting lives they've had and how full a human story they've lived. 
How many of you guys ever sat with your parents and said, tell me the story of how you met and became a couple? How you decided to do what you did, these major decisions in your life? Tell me the earliest memory you can recall. It's fascinating to listen. And as you hear it, you realize there is this rich, beautiful story into which your life plopped in and you're part of something. And that is such a gift to finally realize is that I don't have to make sense of the world starting with day one for me. For me to make full sense of the world, I get to benefit from the way it was making sense for generations before me and how I'm going to tell the generation after me. Psalmist continues, He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. What he's saying there is God didn't just do great things among them. He also clearly revealed his standards for how we are to live with him and before him. And this is part of the responsibility each generation has, is not to just tell of the goodness of God, but to also tell the next generation, this God we know, he's like all of us. He has standards for what he expects from others around him. He has rules for how to relate well to him. Don't we all have rules like that? I know people who are like, don't talk to me until I've had my first sip of coffee. And I, I'm never going to make that mistake twice. Right? Some people, and you know how it is, like some people like, when I'm mad... Don't try to press me. Walk out of the room, save your own life, and come back in half an hour when I've cooled down. We all have rules for the way others are to relate to us, and God is no different. And so we should also be willing to tell those coming after us not only what they can expect from God, but what God can expect from them. And I think we do this most effectively when our lives say more than our words. I know so many of us who were hurt by parents who spoke a good game, but their lives didn't line up at all with the things they were telling us to do. There was so much open hypocrisy, and it confused us because they said something, but they did something altogether different. That, is, that kind of dissonance is so confusing for children. It's so discouraging to watch people in authority, people who are older, rather than modeling for you the words they're saying. They say one thing, and then in their own, they just completely act a different way, and it's so damaging. You lose not only the relationship with that person, but you lose the principle they're standing for. When our lives match the standards that we believe God holds for us, it's a gift to the next generation to show, this is so important to me that my life serves for you as a visual representation of the way a human life ought to be lived in relationship with God. And the psalmist finishes with these words. He says, the, the end goal of all of this is so that the next generation will know all the things God has said and done and tell their children and their children after them so that all those next generations would put their trust in God in the same way that this generation learned to do. I think sometimes we're so bent on making sure that the next generation does well, lives well, performs well, we forget that the greatest gift we give them is that they would be well. 
that they would know the love of this God, that they would have a life-giving relationship with this God, to trust in someone bigger than themselves when all of the world is going to hell. No matter what your stated religion is, when you get devastating news, when everything falls apart, the first impulse is to cry out to someone more than you. Pain, tragedy, loss evoke an instinct to pray, to appeal to someone higher. The greatest gift we can give to the next generation is not to make sure their life is on rails headed towards success, but that they would come to trust in the same God who has earned our trust over many years of really hard life. Now, when we read a passage like Psalm 78, the natural bias, I think, for all of us is to think about my next generation. So when I read any, any uh, teaching in Scripture about generations, my first and, and most common tendency is to think about my own kids. And that's my first responsibility, so that's, that's appropriate. Whatever the Bible tells me, whatever God expects from me to the next generation, I have to first do with my own children. And that, I have to admit, I've done imperfectly. A couple of my kids are in this room right now. I've, I've done it imperfectly, right? <laughs> yes. Emphatic, yes. But that's my first responsibility. It's not to preach to a whole church, but to model and live this out the best I know how to my kids. But God is more than a God of me and my family. He is our God, and so much of this that he writes in Scripture isn't meant just for each individual to go back to his own house and do it with just his own kids. But that collectively, we have a generational responsibility beyond my next generation. It's our next generation. So I want to zoom out for a moment and see the bigger picture. You know, the New Testament is full of passages like this that have the second person pronoun, you. This one's very familiar for most of us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. You read a passage like this, and you think always in terms of the individual and interpersonal level. I should do this with this person that's in my life. I should do this with my partner or my best friend, my mom or my dad, and that's appropriate. But here's what shocks most people when they learn the Greek version of the New Testament. The majority of the yous in the New Testament are not singular, but they're plural. Southerners have a much easier time with this because it's y'all. They actually have a word for the plural you. Most of the time, when the New Testament says you, it isn't an individual command to one person hearing this. It is a command to the whole group. You as a group, you as a generation, you as a people, do this before your God. In this passage, that's, that's the case. It isn't a call to just individual personal humility or personal other-centeredness. But even when we come together as a church, what does it look like to honor the command of this verse at a congregational level? What does it mean for us to put the needs of another generation above our own needs? 
I think this handing over of the church from one generation to the next is an excellent opportunity to put the principles of this passage into practice. It's so tempting to build a church that works for us, us being the majority group in the church. We're the generation that holds all the power because we're also the generation who often gives most of the resources, puts in most of the sweat equity to keep things going. And so we've thought largely, my generation that founded the church, of the church as an us that is us here. But for us to have this principle as a church, we have to make a fundamental decision right now as a church to put them ahead of us. I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but I've watched a lot of churches think of the next generation as an afterthought. And I've watched them age out and lose all those who come after. And by the time it's happening, it's too late to wake up. I have a good friend who's an excellent pastor. He was asked to come and take over a church full of people. The average age was 75. They recognized when they called him, come rescue. This was an SOS hire. It's like, come rescue us. We came, came up for air and we looked around and we're like, oh, wait, there's no young people here. So come and do something. And by the time he got there, he recognized he just could not. I mean, there's nothing to be done. They prayed. They did everything they possibly could. They were creative. And on his watch, they shut the doors after 100 years of ministry. It was one of the saddest things, but it needed to happen. I don't want us to go that route. And here's the thing. This church has always taken children really seriously. We've taken youth pretty seriously. But the group that I really want to focus on as we finish up our time here, are those adults right in the middle. Children and youth have gotten a lot of priority, a lot of attention at this church. Older adults have gotten a lot of priority and a lot of attention. So the bread in this sandwich is fresh and fluffy. It's the meat I'm worried about. It's those adults in their 20s and 30s that we have to give so much more priority to empowering You know, we've talked about how it is the gift of one generation to hand over their faith and their testimony to the next generation. But I also think we need to hand over our structures, our authority, our power, our resources, so that the generation coming up has the tools they need to fulfill the mission that their generation uniquely is being called to do. We're about to buy the first building we've ever owned in 27 years of being a church. That's pretty monumental. And I realize that it comes at a time when um, I feel like too old to get that excited about a building. I feel like, okay, so we're going to not have to bring cases in and set all that up. That's As an old guy, that's all I'm thinking. Oh, it's going to save so much work. (laughs) I do have a redemptive imagination, so I don't want to overstate it. I have some beautiful ideas for what could be done. But it's, more, it's occurring to me more and more, we're not buying this building for the oldies. We're still, we're still living, okay? I'm not, I'm not ready to bury us yet. 
We're still alive, we're gonna use, but we're going to use it the way older people are going to use a building. But I'm excited more and more to think about what the next generation, given this blank canvas, what will they paint on it? What will they do with it that I could never dare to try? I really feel that the acquisition of this building is not a gift to ourselves, but a gift to the next generation. And along with the building is everything else. A seat at the table of leadership, a voice in casting what vision, what direction this church will go, what values we'll embrace, what kind of culture we're going to have. The programs, the resources, all of it. I want us at this moment to decide together as a church that the most critical priority we're facing generationally is the empowerment of the 20 and 30-somethings at this church. And I want everything to be retooled to make sure that that group understands how open the hearts of harvest are for you to take your place here. I'm reminded, this may be a silly analogy, but I, was, I just kept having this image occur. Many times I've been on the road on an interstate, and I see this really cool sports car driving way too slowly. And, it's like, and that offends me for some reason. So I, I always like zoom up and I pull over, and it's usually someone with white hair. They've made it in life. They can finally afford the Porsche 911 with 800 horsepower, and they're driving it very carefully. And I think, what a waste. <laughs> to finally be able to afford it and not drive it the way it deserves to be driven. Now, that image occurs to me because I think we've built a beautiful church here. But in my final days in ministry, I've got maybe 10 years before I face retirement, I realize that my generation is oriented more towards what we might lose than what we might gain. And I feel a little bit like that old couple in the supercar. And I think we could afford it, we own it, but we won't know what this thing could do until our kids get a chance to drive. And I just know that when you put a young person behind the wheel of a supercar, it does things that that old person could not do. That excites me. I'm so sorry if you're older and you know how to drive a fast car. That's not for you. You're, you're awesome. You're cool. I'm just saying. I got a chance to drive my friend's 911 recently. My wife done lost her mind when she drove that thing. She went nuts. I drove it like a 54-year-old man. What a shame. I finally got to drive one. And I... I <laughs> I saw myself that day. As I close, I just want to give you this picture. I think relay races are a really great metaphor for the flow of generations. And that's not new to me. I'm not the first one to think that. We talk a lot about passing the baton, but I want you to think about what a great analogy this is for succession. You know, in a relay race, there are usually four runners running four heats or four, four laps. And each runner in their heat or their lap, they give the very best effort they can. But you don't win a relay race by yourself. And there's this really critical moment that happens several times in a relay race. 
doesn't matter how fast you ran in your lap. The critical moment is when you hand the baton off, and you've seen the YouTube videos of teams that were winning, but they fumbled the handoff, and the whole race is lost. It's heartbreaking to see, especially after an amazing lap, a record time, to watch that one simple piece of it ruin the whole thing. At that critical moment where one runner is handing the baton off, everyone's mentality shifts. There's a runner who, in anticipation, has been in ready position, waiting, like a coiled spring, tense, waiting, waiting. There's another runner who is burning everything they've got, just pouring it all out. But as they approach that handoff, the one running as fast as they can begins to slow down. And the one that's been sitting still begins to take off. And it's critical that they match their pace Because right now, this is not the race. This is the way the race continues. You get that wrong, it doesn't matter how fast you take off after. We stand at a historic crossroads as a church. And the handing off of the baton cannot be a one-sided event. For that to happen in a race, both sides have to be ready together. So I tell those who are older, we've enjoyed a really good run and we still have many great years ahead of us, but our focus and priority cannot just be running to win anymore. We're about to hand this thing off to another group of runners. What happens next in the next several years is everything. We miss it. We will just age out together. We get it right a new generation will write a beautiful story with God here. Now, I know we've invested a lot in the youngest in this church, but the ones we really need to see right now are our younger adults in their 20s and 30s. And so I say to those who are older, start seeing these younger adults. Ask God to break your heart to give you a vision, to give you a generosity of spirit, to give every bit of your strength to leave behind something great for those who follow. Moderate your pace. Let them know you're coming. And I say to those who are in their 20s and 30s, this is your house too. You're in the race. You've been coiled and waiting. Don't wait for someone to tell you to go. Watch for us. We're coming. Start running now. Start. Because if you don't start running and we come in hot, that's not a handoff, that's a collision. It's not going to be good. Start running right now. We want to give you everything. I was so happy when I found this picture because it really says it all. Right now, This is the time for the next gen to rise. It will mean everything for the future of Harvest. And I want to ask you to pause and think about what that means to you personally, where you are. Can't wait to see what God is going to do through the next generation. And I personally, as a pastor, have knelt before God 
and dedicated the rest of my ministry to making sure that that handoff goes beautifully. I hope you'll join me and let's do this together. Let's not lose the story of God in this church to inattention. When you listen to a younger adult, it's fascinating to see how differently they apprehend God, how differently they navigate life. And I want to see what they're going to do when it's their turn. Praise God for that. Would you join me in just a moment of reflection, prayer? If you're older and you've poured your life into building this church, I want to say thank you. Just express how grateful, how proud I am of our generation. Those who came before us and those who come after us will not really know the full story of what it took to build this church. But we know, and God sees. And now we're at a point where we're answering the question, why did we do all that? Who was it for? And the answer is sitting among us right now. And the answer is sown all around Chicagoland waiting for a church like this. If you're younger, I want to ask you to see that this church is yours. And more and more you'll find that what you say and what you think and what you believe will turn this ship in different directions. Just come and take your seat at the table. I'll leave you with that. I'm going to give you just a minute to respond to the Lord and we'll close our service with some singing. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.